Support for this podcast comes from Outdoor Supply Hardware, inviting listeners to OSHA's big anniversary sale celebration, May 20th through the 26th, featuring daily deals, $15,000 in giveaways, 20% off store-wide on Saturday and Sunday, and a lot more. Learn more at OSH.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. Hey, everyone from KQED Public Radio. This is Political Breakdown, and I'm Marisa Lagos. And I'm Scott Schaefer. And today on The Breakdown, we have the new district attorney from Alameda County. And she comes to the top prosecutor job from a not-so-traditional background. She's a longtime civil rights attorney who spent a lot of time on the other side of the courtroom suing government agencies. That's right. Pamela Price is here. She is the first black DA ever in Alameda County, a longtime legal champion of gender equality and a critic of mass incarceration. And now she's leading about 150 attorneys in the East Bay office. So we will get to that in just a second. Very excited for that, Scott. But first, um, a really devastating week here in California. Two mass shootings, one down in Los Angeles in Monterey Park. Um, and then, of course, here in the Bay Area on Monday in Half Moon Bay. Um, which we have been responding reporting to. Reporting we weekend. have. And, uh, you know, we've had a number of reporters down there, including you, Marisa. You were down there on uh, Tuesday morning. And, uh, you know, these are always the most difficult kinds of stories to cover. But, you know, tell us, you know, what what was your takeaway from the people you talked to down there, the law enforcement folks? I mean, it's a tight-knit community of about 12,000 people for something like this to happen. It's just so terrible. Yeah. I mean, I think a couple of things, you know, we and I've been talking about this all week, but these were at farms. The folks targeted were all farmers farm workers, people who really are the ones doing the work, putting the food on our table. And, you know, like most parts of the Bay Area, I think Half Moon Bay is tight knit, but it also has a lot of inequality. And we're seeing some of that. The governor's office saying today that labor relations is going to actually investigate these farms because of what the governor saw and heard there. I think politically, what struck me was at this news conference uh, a day later with law enforcement, but also, you know, congressmen and women, uh, uh, lawmakers from Sacramento and the governor himself, There was no hesitation to go straight into the gun policy debate. And the governor particularly went after House Speaker Kevin McCarthy um, and Republicans in Congress saying, you know, we can't do this alone in California. Yeah, I mean, McCarthy, you know, he is now the new speaker and was notably quiet (laughs) on on um, on Twitter. Uh, You know, the speaker's office later said, well, actually, the speaker did say something, which was about one sentence. But he also criticized sort of tacitly gun control, saying that, well, you know, California has the toughest gun control in the country and it didn't really seem to work. You're saying Which McCarthy said McCarthy that. McCarthy right? did say that. And that is, you know, and, and of course, the governor called that out. And it is just that is the whole point. It has right. to be done nationally. We are you know, not if you can go to Nevada and buy a gun and bring it here. Yeah, we can't yeah. do it by ourselves. And a lot of the judges that McCarthy and others have helped get on the courts are the ones striking down a lot of California's laws. And so I think the governor also called out some of those judges by name. Um, He was very fired up and very 
I mean, upset. He had spent two days meeting with victims, and you could just see it in his face and voice. You yeah, know? and of course, it's all complicated as you as you suggested by you know these folks, you know, earning like nine dollars an hour, which is less than the fifteen fifty minimum wage here in California. Deplorable housing conditions, and it's great to you know have a spotlight on that now. But of course, there are people throughout California working and living under those conditions. Absolutely, uh, this is know, not unique to Half Moon Bay. It is I not think unique it's important to, to say. Exactly. Um, switching gears before we go to the new DA. Uh, We did get an update this morning, Scott, in the uh, burgeoning Senate race for 2024. Tell us what you know. Yeah. So Adam Schiff, uh, very widely expected to jump into the race. We were talking with him here at KQED last week, and he did jump in officially this morning. Um, You know, he's got a lot going for him. He has a national profile, having been one of the lead prosecutors in the House of the first impeachment of Donald Trump. He was on the uh, January 6th committee. But, you know, and he's also got a lot of money. He's got $20 million in the bank. He's going to need every penny of that and more. Katie Porter, uh, Orange County Democrat, also in the race. We're expecting Barbara Lee to jump in perhaps soon as well. And, uh, you know, it's going to be a very lively race. We're expecting Diane Feinstein will retire. Uh, but she's saying now, actually, that she may not make that decision till who knows when. Next year. Next year, who she knows? said today. I yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that this is really where we're going to see. I mean, in a way, this feels like the first real open Senate race of of. My adult lifetime, Since right? Since 1992, because, I Yeah, think. because in 2016, when Kamala Harris ran, it it felt a little bit more like a coronation than a, than a campaign. And I think that, um, you know, we're already seeing on Twitter and I'm getting text messages from p- folks who are supporting Katie Porter, kind of pointing out, you know, Adam Schiff's long history as more of a moderate Democrat, attacking him for taking corporate donations. So you can tell that this is going to be personal and personal nasty. because it has to be because the truth is on a lot of policy. See, they're not that far apart, right? Yeah, and yeah, that exactly. is just how it goes. And and we did talk about this, we should say, last week uh, in depth with Debbie Meslow, who's a longtime advisor to Kamala Harris and, and has worked on campaigns, and Joe Garofoli from The Chronicle. So if you want to hear more about that race, which... You know, we know. We know it's 2023 and we don't want to talk about uh, it either, but we have we no have choice. To. <laughs> All right. Check that out. Um, we're going to take a short break now. When we come back, we'll be joined by new Al- Alameda County DA Pamela Price. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast with an S. Thanks. Welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Marisa Lagos here with Scott Schaefer. We are thrilled to welcome Alameda County's new district attorney, Pamela Price. Pamela Price, welcome to The Breakdown. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We are thrilled to have you. Um, And we want to start with your biography. You did not have the type of childhood that typically leads somebody into 
you know, arguments in front of the Supreme Court or being a top prosecutor. Um, can you tell us a little bit about your life in Cincinnati? I know you ended up in foster care at a pretty young age. Sure. I'm a child of the civil rights movement. I got arrested in a civil rights demonstration when I was 13 years old, and I got tracked into the juvenile justice and the foster care system. There were literally millions of young people like me that became active in the movement, and we paid a price for it. And so I paid a price. No one thought that I I would graduate from high school or that I would ever much less go to Yale or become a lawyer or go to the Supreme Court and certainly not become the first black female prosecutor. Tell us a little bit about your family and how it is that you ended up in foster care. Sure. My parents were middle class, African-American families, upwardly bound. My father came from a large family. My mother was actually a foster kid and was raised by her cousins as a foster as her foster parents. And so at the point that I got involved in the civil rights movement, my parents were adamantly opposed to that. And if you've ever to you seen being to me protester. being involved, yeah. yeah. And they were scared. My mother's from Birmingham, Alabama. And she grew up when Emmett Till when that murder happened. And mm-hmm. that's all she could think was that they are going to kill my child. Mm-hmm. And so she did everything she could to try to keep me from being in the streets protesting. And in fact, it was a time when people were killed. One of my first demonstrations that I organized was December 4th, 1969, when Fred Hampton and Mark Clark were assassinated by the Chicago police. They were leaders of the Black Panther Party in Chicago. And so I organized a sit-in at my school and promptly was expelled for engaging in such unorthodox activity. Uh, so it was a, they were very challenging times. So when you were arrested, then did they just take you away from your parents? Uh, no, I was already away. I was actually a ward of the court when I was arrested, which okay. made it even worse. They didn't look kindly on that. My foster mother got in a lot of trouble. <laughs> um, but we, um, so they did take me away when I got arrested, and I had to go through a whole legal process, and it was pretty bad. You ended up in politics running for office, uh, But when you were, I think, 11 years old, Martin Luther King Jr. was shot, killed. What impact did that? Is that really what sparked your interest in the movement and in getting involved in politics and in your community? Absolutely. The moment, the night that Dr. King was killed, I was both traumatized and radicalized. And I think as a young person, seeing him on television and seeing young people in the South who were being hosed. And a lot of Dr. King's movement was built with young people. And so I saw young people like me, 11, 12, 13 years old, teenagers being hosed on the nightly news and being attacked by dogs. And so that impacted me. And when that happened to him, my 11-year-old mind could not process how someone who believed in love and justice and peace was now had been killed. It's very traumatizing. Did you maintain a relationship with your parents, your grandparents after, you know, because I know you got emancipated very young as well. Yes, I was emancipated at 16. And no, I did not have a relationship with my parents at that time. We reconciled much later. Um, And my mother, who's 91 now, I still see her and I'm a big part of her life. Wow, 91. Yeah, but it took a long time, a long time. It's not unusual, sadly, for someone in the kind of situation you were in as a young person to be told by counselors and teachers to lower your expectations. And you ended up going to Yale. Um, So who was it in your life that believed in you, that encouraged you? 
I had three foster moms, Amy Jenkins, Lorena O'Donnell, and Alice Aaron, who really believed in me, and they wouldn't let me throw my life away. They kept telling me, get your education. That's the one thing that no one can take from you. And so because my birth mom was a teacher, I think I could hear that message. So they did that. And then I had great teachers, my drama teacher, my English teacher. Even as I was at times dropping out of school, I went to three high schools, even Through that, there were people in education that saw something that said, don't just completely throw your life away. You can make it if you try. And I heard that. So then you end up going from Cincinnati to Yale. That must have been a bit of culture shock. Very Um, much so. What, uh, yeah, just tell, what was that like arriving there? And did you, I mean, it seems like you really did lean into your education at that point. Yeah. Education was a game changer for me. Absolutely saved my life. Literally. I was working in a factory, dropped out of high school when I got accepted to Yale. You got to re-enroll real quick? Yeah, I had to (laughs) re-enroll. My counselor was like, we've been looking for you. We need you to come back and finish high school so you can go to Yale. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Transformational. And so, yeah, I got to Yale. I'm 17 years old. I'm a young black girl. Biggest Angela Davis Afro you ever saw. And um, I had to learn how to navigate that space. Well, it seems like you learn pretty damn quick because uh, not only were you thriving there, but you and some other female students at Yale actually sued some law professors for sexual assault, sexual harassment. How did that come about? And were you a leader in that as well? I was reluctantly a leader. I was propositioned by one of my professors at the end of my sophomore year. I was um, maximizing my opportunity at Yale because when I left Cincinnati, my foster mom told me, go as far as you can and don't look back. And so Yale had a junior year abroad program, and I got into the program and went to Dar es Salaam, Tanzania, East Africa. That's pretty far away. It was far (laughs) as far as I could get. (laughs) And while I was away, right before I left to go to Tanzania was when this professor offered to give me an A if I would sleep with him and made it clear I would get a C if I didn't. While I was away, the Yale Undergraduate Women's Caucus organized women at Yale, and they filed the first lawsuit under Title IX to challenge sexual harassment, to give it a name. Because when it happened to me and when I left this country, sexual harassment didn't have a name. So you guys lost that case, but it did lead to big changes at Yale. Um, I assume that probably kind of lit a spark in you. You end up coming out here, going to UC Berkeley Law School, and then passing the bar on your first try, which is something. I know a lot of California attorneys. (laughs) So you go into civil rights law. I I know you've had an illustrious career in a lot of cases. Is there any one that really sticks out to you um, as just meaningful or that you would sort of point to? Sure. I think the cases for me, and it's a group of cases, my first sexual harassment case in employment was against the California Department of Corrections on behalf of a female correction officer. And those from 1991 to 2015, those cases were at the heart of my practice. I think you've called uh, CDCR your favorite defendant. Ah, yes. What what do you mean by that? (laughs) I mean that they didn't understand what the law 
meant, how to apply the law. And so because of someone with my background and understanding of the law, that meant I usually could win my cases and we could get paid. You think, what They've difference been, do you think it made, though, all those lawsuits? I do think it made a difference. I will share with you, I met with a group of 18 women in 2019 who worked at one of CDCR's newest facilities down in Stockton. And they asked me to come and meet with a few women to talk about the experiences they were having there with sexual harassment, both by inmates as well as by officers. And I spent three hours with 18 women. And they're telling me these horrible stories that sounded just like the same stories that I heard in 1991. And I was sitting there listening to them, and one of the women said, we could tell from the look on your face that you're thinking, what have I been doing for the last 30 years? Like, what? how is this still possible? And she wrote me a note later. She said, "Don't we don't want you to feel like you have failed. What you have done over the last 30 years has made a difference for so many women. It has changed the conditions. It has raised the awareness. And it has stopped a lot of the things that were happening. Um, But CDCR is a huge state agency. And it is very, very challenging to change the state or agencies from the outside. It really does have to come from the inside. Still work always to be done on those issues. I mean, on the issue of gender equality, I I was really fascinated reading about both your personal and professional background around the question of what we have sometimes referred to as battered women, this idea that somebody who's being abused should not be prosecuted if they react in violence, that they should be protected. Um, And you were actually personally prosecuted in one of those cases. Can you talk a little bit about that and just how it informs your work now as a prosecutor? Because a lot of the changes that were made in, I think, aimed at helping women sometimes ended up hurting victims like yourself. True. I was very much involved in criminal justice reform in law school. And I helped, as a law student, I helped found a group called Bay Area Defense Committee for Battered Women because the women in in the Bay Area, in the East Bay, Oakland, Berkeley, we became aware of cases where the Alameda County District Attorney's Office was prosecuting battered women. And it wasn't just happening here. It was happening across the country. But in our backyard, we decided that we wanted to support women in that situation and raise awareness about that. Um, Fast forward two years later, I find myself in an abusive relationship. And I call the police to help me. And because I flunked the attitude test with the police officers, I end up being arrested and taken to jail. And you had like a three-month-old at the I time? did. I had a three-month-old child. And the officers wanted to take my baby and give her to her father. And that was not acceptable to me. And so we had a dispute about that. And ultimately, the Alameda County DA's office decided to charge me and to prosecute me. Yeah. And I think some of it was political because I was an active voice, the co-coordinator of this defense committee that had been going to court in Alameda County challenging judges and defense attorneys and district attorneys about how women were being treated. If you're just joining us, I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos, and you're listening to Political Breakdown. Our guest today, Pamela Price, the new district attorney in Alameda County. Well, 
let's talk about that job. Yeah. Uh, all these, <laughs> now you're in that office. Yeah, you're bringing all these experiences into this job. Uh, you defeated a veteran prosecutor uh, who was in that office before. Um, we've seen here in San Francisco a progressive DA be recalled. What are you going to do to make sure that doesn't happen to you? I'm going to represent my community and stay in touch with my community. Not to say that he did not, but understanding that I come from a very activist community in the East Bay and that many of the organizations that work to elect me, I have been a member of, I've been a supporter of, I've been active with. I've worked with Soldiers Against Violence Everywhere in the East Bay, which is an Oakland-based organization that speaks out against gun violence. I've worked pro bono counsel for the Coalition for Police Accountability. Um, I've been part of coalitions and working with community groups across the county that are about making change on a whole range of issues. And so for me to step into this role with the mandate that we had through the election, it shows that the community is ready for change and that I have earned their confidence and their trust. And I'm very mindful of that, that I will remain true to the purpose for which I was elected. I'm wondering, though, I mean, you have been an activist. You've been on the outside. You've talked and fought your whole life to reduce mass incarceration. Now you're the one in charge of locking people up. I mean, how are you thinking about balancing that? And, you know, and what do you say to people, to Scott's point, who are skeptical that you can, you know, do your job given your activist background? I would not have stepped into this role if I did not believe that it was more, it's about more than just locking people up. I want to serve, and I am serving, the people of Alameda County as a minister of justice. And justice is not always locking people up. Usually justice is not locking people up. Because when we talk about mass incarceration, it's not just the people who we have incarcerated. It's the families of those who have been incarcerated. It's the victims who have been have suffered harm. It's a whole range of system-impacted people who are not getting the services and the resolution that we all deserve. When we talk about justice with compassion, we mean across the board. Mm. Victims who, like myself, who are being prosecuted, who have not been served by this system. Mothers and families who have not been served by this system. We have horrible stories, not only here, but across the country of people suffering from mental illness that have harmed someone else. Let me just push back, though. All due respect, though, you're not the head of social services. You're not the head of mental health. You're not the mayor, right? And so, you know, your job is specific. And as much as you can work with those other folks, um, like, how, how do you want to do that as DA? I'm bigger than all of those. <laughs> <laughs> because every problem that they have to deal with ultimately right. is going to come to my department. But if you fix it, it could take 10 years, right? I mean, I just, we've seen this I've challenge. I've only got six. I know. <laughs> you know, what, what, one of the things we saw in San Francisco was that it appears that the police helped undermine the DA. Mm-hmm. You have to work with the DA or with the police closely as the DA, um, and there's some you know turmoil right now with the Oakland Police Department and the Chief uh, Laron Armstrong. How are you thinking about you know you promised police accountability mm-hmm. and that's important, but how do you do that and maintain trust with the departments and the sheriff and everyone else involved in law enforcement? I speak from a place of integrity, 
and what I say to police and what I said to people in the race. I'm the only one who was a candidate for district attorney that has both represented cops and sued cops. I will stand for constitutional policing and for officers who respect the law, who serve our community. I respect people who put their lives on the line, who engage us when we need to be engaged. And certainly as a member of the public, I've been trained like everyone else. When you have a problem, you call the police. I expect services. I'm paying for services, okay? So I'm very clear about the role of the police. I'm also very clear that there are problems with police and that in in many circumstances, police do not keep us safe. They are not the appropriate responders for people in a mental health crisis and that my responsibility as a minister of justice is to hold them accountable. And I'm often the only person outside of a police department where you have a chief. The only person that can hold them accountable is the district attorney. And so I have to be able to say to them, yes, we need you to testify. But if you're coming to lie in court, I don't, I, I'm not going to tolerate that. And I'm very clear about that. And so I am not... Um, unaware or unable to engage with police officers and certainly not with chiefs. I've deposed most of the chiefs of Oakland, <laughs> as, I, as I told the last chief, who I also deposed. Um, I'm not afraid to talk to police. I'm very clear uh, that my responsibility as a lawyer is very different from their responsibility as an officer of the law. How are you thinking about building your staff? We've seen you uh, place several lawyers on leave. They'll be going through a union process. You fired a few investigators. I'm pretty sure if I ask you about those cases, you'll say I can't talk about personnel. But I just wonder, like, broadly, like, what is your criteria? And how are you thinking about bringing in new people? Because that's, I think, been a challenge for DAs who have not come from the typical law enforcement background. So you're correct. We're making some transitions in Oakland. And you said leave. Just keep in mind, it's leave with pay. So (laughs) I'll just say that. Um, And I brought on some wonderful new lawyers. I said at the outset, I want to hire lawyers who want to change lives and not destroy them. And that's been our, our mission. And we've accomplished that with some wonderful hires. I have a great leadership, executive leadership team of very powerful lawyers, visionary people, but folks who have practical experience, you know, my chief, one of my chief deputies has been a prosecutor for 32 years. My other chief deputy has been the general counsel for a major community college district. And I brought in lawyers that have experience from different areas. And we brought in some prosecutors. We've been There's a place for that, great... folks who have been doing this for a while? Yeah. There's also been some criticism of some of the mm-hmm. folks you've brought in. Uh, there was one attorney that came in from Marin, a very different county from Alameda or San Francisco for that matter. Uh, And, you know, some flack for bringing in defense lawyers. Um, What, how, how, given all of those things and everything else we've talked about, how do you want to be judged? How are you going to judge the kind of job you've done, you know, between now and the time you're going to face the voters again? Mm -hmm. I think that people should judge me by the results. I have to have a team and I get to make decisions about my team. My predecessor was not questioned at all. And I think the kinds of scrutiny and questions and doubts that people raise about progressive prosecutors, it's very interesting that they don't have those same questions and doubts and scrutiny has been given 
certainly before 2017, no one was talking about what does your local prosecutor do. And now that we have said there is a position that is a powerful position that has an impact on the community, and we've questioned the impact on the community, now suddenly everybody wants to know, well, what is she doing? (laughs) So I'm mindful that, you know, there... I don't take into account that there's a double standard. My job, I'm very clear about it. People will judge me by the results. My job is to protect public safety by advancing justice. Can I ask you, though, like how you want to approach things, um, especially given you might not have a staff that's as experienced, you know, you have to set a tone and there have to be policies in any DA's office so that line prosecutors know how to do the day-to-day work. But I think some of the critique of the sort of mass incarceration has been that there hasn't been enough, um, you know, looking at things on an individual basis. So mm-hmm. you, you, for example, campaign saying you don't want to charge juveniles as adults. Is there a risk in having your own blanket policies? There's always a risk in having blanket policies because people are people, right? Exactly, yeah. As I told people, I have represented people solving problems for 30 years. I've never represented a perfect person. People are very complicated. And so I think within the range of options, which is really what the blanket policies are designed to create, to set what the limits are. And within the box, you get to say what the options are. And our problem is that we've only had like two options, particularly for juveniles. You either go to juvenile court as a juvenile or you get charged as an adult as a juvenile. And neither one of those things may be appropriate for the young person who you're dealing with. But we do know from the brain science that until young people reach the age of approximately 26, they do not have the same capacity to reason or make decisions. And because I am a mother, I understand that just because you're 18 doesn't mean you're ready. All right. We are going to leave it there. Pamela Price, New Alameda County DA. Thank you so much. Thank you. That is going to do it for this edition of Political Breakdown. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. Our engineer is Jim Bennett. Our producer, Guy Marzarati. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. See you next week. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, 
Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening and thank you for your support.